We're going to be in primarily in the book of Revelation, if you'll turn there tonight. Our series is What's New With You in the New Year? New creation. That's what we looked at last week. Tonight we're going to look at your new name. This is a study in identity. Identity is powerful. In fact, you may not realize it, but one of the most powerful things. I talked with someone for extensively uh, just a few days ago, and they were telling me the story about how they were adopted and didn't know who their birth mother or family were because they were born in another country. And they were telling me for the last 15 years, they're about, someone, they're about my age, 40, you know, 35, 40. And uh, they were telling me the last 15 years, they've been searching for their family, their original family. And so they told me about all the process and somebody who has been doing research for them, finding things. And for the longest time, they didn't turn up for anything, anyone. And so they decided to take a vacation to the place where they were born just to see it. And within months beforehand, God just put it all together that the person who had been looking for all those years finally found people and discovered them all. And so they went taking the trip. They were just going on their own to see their homeland where they're from. And they actually met the mother, the actual mother of the person had already died just two years previous. But there were brothers and cousins and relatives, and they got to meet them all. But in relaying this story with all the detail, and it was great just to sit there and listen. Um, but they did relate this, that not a single person and all the relatives that they met knew Jesus as their Savior. And what was a great moving thought to me was toward the end of the conversation, the person told me this, you know, after searching for my family so long, I realized that I already had my true family because my identity is in Jesus. And the Christians in my life and the church, that's my family. And although it's nice to know my biological family and I've had an adoptive family, my greatest family, it was always there. In, in Christ. And so it was just a great story. But it made me, it moved me to show you, you know, how powerful your identity that, you know, and people spend all kinds of time, years, all kinds of money, thousands of dollars for some, just to be able to locate their family because they want to know this question, the answer to it who am I? I mean, you know, back in the day, if you went to Bible college or otherwise, you may have read, you know, the three big questions who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? You know, those three questions are the biggest one in life. And I would tell you the reason number one is always who am I because it controls the other two. It really is that powerful. I would say to you tonight, whoever tells you who you are determines how you will live your life. Whoever answers number one for you will also be the one who answers two and three. Everyone, everyone, including everyone in here tonight, has an identity. But the question is, who gets to decide who you are. I read an article in Forbes magazine, and it was talking about your identity. And here's what the author says, secular. So, if everyone has an identity, and if that identity is a key driver of human behavior, wouldn't it make sense, listen to this, to choose an identity that is most likely to get the results you want? Take a look at your life, your own life. I guarantee you, 
that the results are a direct product of your identity. Did you hear what he's saying? This is a secular person. So look at your life. The way that you behave and the results of your life, whatever good or bad, they are product, direct product of your identity. If you want direct results in any area of your life, choose, embody, and leverage the power of identity. Now, there are some decent things in there, but there's two major flaws that are anti-biblical. Let me tell you what. The first one is, for this writer, identity is self-made. Did you hear what he said? To choose an identity. In other words, and by the way, if you're my age, you know, getting up there, right, and, and older, everyone, it was not even disputed back in my childhood that others gave you your identity, your name, how you're brought up, what family you're in. Most of all your identity was given to you from the outside. Today, in our postmodern world, that has almost been completely reversed. Today, you are who you are, not because of family or friends or things on the outside, but you get to choose. We call it designer identity. (laughs) So today's problem is that identity is self-made. You are the creator of who you are. And the second thing he says in there is you should choose the identity you want, what? To get the results that is best for you. See, today in our modern world, identity is self-made and it's self-centered. You create an identity because life is all about you getting what you want. Now, let me give you an extreme um, example of this. Today, we have a strong transgender movement in our culture. And if you want to think of it in these terms, it will help you understand a little bit more of it. Transgenderism is an identity issue to the fullest capacity. Um, It also, like we're going to see tonight, includes a name, your name change. You're going to change your name. You're going to go from a male name to a female name or vice versa. You're going to have pronoun changes. And the reason is, is that you have made yourself creator. You're the one who designs who you are. So if you were born a boy, you can now, in our culture, change and tell everyone that you're a girl. Why? Because identity is self-made. It's also self-centered. It doesn't matter how you were born, what God did, what your family called you, and what you really are. None of that matters because it's there to give you what you want, despite if it doesn't match up with reality, because that's the world in which we live. The Bible offers us a completely different view and a completely different alternative to that, and it does it one way through new name. New name. There are two times, if you want to turn there, I asked you to. I'll read them to you, and then we'll look at the text and develop some applications about how we can live out our new name identity in Christ. Two of them, and they are in the two of the seven churches that are written in the very beginning of the book of Revelation, and I'll read them for you. Chapter 2 and verse 17. This is the church of Pergamum, a very compromising church. And we're going to read the end of it because it's in the uh, reward section, if you want to put it that way. The conquer, victor formula. It reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's the first one. I'll give him a new name, and it's written on a white stone. You'll go, what in the world is that? We're going to get to that later, just a little bit. Second one, if you'll turn the page if necessary, chapter 3 in verse 12. This is the church to Philadelphia. There are, Pergamum was a compromising church. This one has no condemnations, this church. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Those are the two times that that phrase is used. I would like you, with all of its difficulties, I'd like you to see Revelation tonight, perhaps just for the study, as a book that is emphatically emphasizing, emphatic uh, on identity. You know, as well as I do, that the name of the book is the Apocalypse or the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling is the term. And so the book of Revelation is to show you the number one and most important identity that there ever has been, and that's Jesus. So the book is the identity of Jesus. That's what we're going to find out. In fact, in this book, Jesus is given 37 different titles. That's a lot. A lot of them are mentioned in chapter one in the first vision. Um, so there, but that's important because we're going to find out that the book of Revelation says, when I show you the identity of Jesus, if you follow him, his identity gives you yours. See, so you don't get to design your own. You are not the creator of your own identity. It doesn't come from within. It comes from without. You have to be able to submit to God and who he is and to his authority displayed and exhibited in Jesus Christ before you can actually know who you are. Now, the interesting thing is <laughs> that there's two sections immediately that chapter one is all about Jesus's identity and hardly anything, if anything, about ours. And I'm going to tell you why that matters. Let me show you an example. Revelation chapter one, turn back to chapter one, verse four. I'll give you an example of how it looks and what it works, how it works. There's a little beginning of John chapter 1 that's the same grace to you and peace from him who was who is I'm sorry and who was and is to come draw a line from that down to verse 8 because he says the exact same thing I am alpha and omega says the Lord here it is again who is and who was and who is to come but he adds this the almighty so he wants you to know up front that Jesus is forever He's eternal, he's God, and he's got power. And if you're going to read the book of Revelation, you're going to have to tuck that into your intellectual storage room back there because you're going to need to draw and put it back out numerous times all throughout. Afterwards, starting down in verse 12, he has the first time when he sees heavens open and he gets a vision of Jesus. And all of his splendor and power and, and purity and he tells about how he looked. You can read it all for yourself. We don't have time. Why does that matter? Well, because when we get into chapter 2, all of what the churches, all seven churches are about, you cannot understand them 
and who they are supposed to be and why they get condemnations and why they're to repent and why they need to change. You don't get any of that if you don't understand the basis of what the church is to be is Jesus. We are to live out the identity of who he is. And so to prove that point, let me show you how important it is. All seven churches, all of them begin usually the very first or second verse with a statement about who Jesus is. Let me just give you the two that we're looking at as an example. The one that we're looking at, chapter 2 and verse 12, and the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the two-edged sword. Out of all the seven, this is the shortest one, right? Write it down if you're studying Revelation. All of the descriptions of Jesus' identity in each one of the seven churches, all of those identities come from the vision of chapter 1. So if you're looking at, say, why is this church bad and why are they having this problem? Because they have deviated from finding their identity in Jesus. They've compromised it. They've become cultural Christians in some ways. They've stopped living out who they say they really are. And, when it, re- and it results in doctrinal error, moral error, all kinds of awful things are taking place in some of these churches. Why? Because they have taken steps away from following and living out the identity of Jesus. That is absolutely crucial. And so let's take our two texts, give the identity of Jesus, and see how well these two churches with the new name lived it out and make some applications for our lives. Chapter 2 and verse 12, And the angel of the church in Pergamum writes the words of him who has a two-edged sword. Now, that's not a great way you want your letter to be starting because if you know anything about Roman swords, there were two of them, right? One of them was about 18 inches long, small handle, singular grip, and it was used by every, even the king or the emperor Caesar would wear one. It was somewhat decorative militarily, but it was also every military person wore one. It was for hand-to-hand conduct up close, when you're grabbing the person and fighting for your life. That's not, what, that's, there's two words for sword. That's not the one in this text. This text uses a word for sword, which talks about a sword that's five feet long. The handle itself was two foot. It was made of wood, and it was a two-handled grip. The blade was slightly curved at the end so you could chop and you could do this motion. And it was in huge battle scenes. And it was so powerful and so sharp on both sides that anyone who came up to you with a shield to defend themselves, that blade would cut the shield in half. It was big. and It was powerful. In the Roman war, it was considered one of the most personal deadly weapons that you could have. It is also the sword that is used in many passages in the book of Romans and in Revelation, and it always talks about someone having to be killed or punished in judgment. The government, it says in Romans 13, does not use the sword in vain, and that means this one. Why does that matter? Because this is a church in Pergamos that needs to be warned that when Jesus comes, it could be judgment for them. Because they're acting like they know Jesus, some of them at least, right? 
but they're acting like it, but they're holding on to doctrines that are anti who Jesus' identity is. But in the middle of all that, stay with me, in the middle of all that, it says this, I know, verse 13, you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Now, ready? I'm going to make a point with you. Circle it. My faithful witness. Remember what I told you? Jesus' identity determines our identity. It determines our identity. It determines our activity if we live it out. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, what is one of the titles of Jesus' identity in chapter 1 and verse 5? And from Jesus Christ, what does it say? Come on, class. Faithful witness. So who is Jesus? The faithful witness. Who is Antipas? The faithful witness. Why? Because in a church where there's a lot of compromise going, a lot of people who are not living the identity of Jesus out, there are some who are, and Antipas is named. Now, here's a pattern in the Bible. Ready? You are looking at scriptures, and I'll give you a couple of them. That when you live out the identity of Christ, that's what God acknowledges. No matter who you are, no matter what everybody else thinks you are, God sees it and God acknowledges it. You're not forgotten, even if you stand alone. And sometimes it seems like it's difficult, if not more than that, to do so. In Pharaoh's day, in Egypt, one, Exodus 1, in Egypt, there was a time where Pharaoh tells all of the, the midwives to kill the sons of the Egyptian woman when they're born. The Bible never gives the Pharaoh, the world ruler, most powerful man in the world, never gives his name, only Pharaoh. But you know when it comes down to, in that same text in verse 15, there are two midwives who are over all the other midwives. They defy him. They practice God's identity and who he is and what that means, and they live it out, risking their own lives to do so. And they get their names mentioned. Shifra, do you remember? And who's the other one? There's your Bible quiz tonight. Shifra, and if you get this, then you get a prize or something. Puah. I knew you weren't going to get that one, right? Who's getting that, right? But their names are in the Bible. They, Pharaoh, no. Shifra and Pua, yes. Why? Because God wants you to know tonight, you live for him, you live out his identity and who he is, you live like him in a difficult culture. He doesn't forget. He, listen, he knows you by name. Luke 16, you know this story, scared the tar out of you probably when you were a child at least, right? It's the rich man in Lazarus. You know how he wakes up in hell? He wants a little water on his tongue because he's burning in those flames. You remember that story? Well, there are two people in the story. You know, the one who, the beggar by the gate, and he goes to Abraham's bosom and is saved. What's his name? Lazarus. If you look at Luke 16 as a parable, you'd have to say this. It's the only parable Jesus ever taught where he actually used someone's name. But what is the rich man's name? There is no mention of it. All he's called is Yes, the rich man. You know why? Listen, because the Bible says that was his identity. See, he, Lazarus was a beggar, but yet his identity was in God. 
The rich man had everything, power, status, wealth. But see, he built his life because it was his identity. His identity was, I am wealthy. And he built his life on it. He acted it out. He didn't kick Lazarus outside of his gate. He didn't pummel him. He didn't spit on him. He ignored him because that's what people who don't have God's identity do. See, he didn't have, but, he, but Lazarus built his identity on God. That's the difference between those two. The Bible says, the first passage we read, chapter 2, if you go back there real quick. Chapter 2 says, to the one who conquers. Now, I want you to write this down because it's our first point. We're almost done. It's the word we get Nike tennis shoes from. N-I-K-E is the actual Greek spelling, and the Nike shoes come from this. They are athletic shoes because it was a word for athletes. It could also be a a word to describe military conflict. But Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. If you pleased her, you'd win your wars. You'd win your battles, your conflicts. He says this, that's what all Christians are. Do not think... That in all seven churches, the one who conquers, though it's mentioned on every single one of them at the end, do not think that that's a special elite class of believers. This is what all believers are to be like. Let me say it to you this way. Every Christian who's truly a Christian will be victorious. Not because they never get defeated or ever sin or ever do anything wrong. No, but the trajectory and pattern of their life is this. It's victory. And they're rewarded for it. And it says in verse 17... I will give them some of the hidden manna, which I think, not no time tonight, it's a hidden feast, the manna, the Torah uh, that was in the Ark of the Covenant in comparison to the idol meat that was offered in the feast in the temples of the gods. You could read that earlier in the text. But more importantly, our text is, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. In their day, that if you were invited to the pagan temple and you wanted to be part of that temple, they would give you a white stone. And on it would be the name of the deity that was represented in that temple that you would be invited to worship. And they would allow you to go to a special feast and all this food. And then you would have the invitation and you would bow down before the idol and worship him. And if you got that stone, not only were you accepted in that temple... But that deity would convey some of their power to you. That was the thought behind it. The idea is that the white stone with a new name on it, Jesus says, no, I'm making you part of my temple. You'll see in chapter 3 in a minute. That you're invited to the true God to worship and bow down to him. Also, commentators say, there's a possibility of a second interpretation. Is that when you were in a court situation, in a Roman court, They would cast their ballots about whether you would be killed or not as a Christian by taking little white stones. And on those stones, they would vote yes or no based on whether you should die. And these Christians in Pergamos, because Antipas was killed by them, Antipas was, might be a thought that the white stone is God's stone that he casts in your behalf. Everyone else may think you're guilty, but he gives you a white stone of acquittal because in his sight... When you follow Jesus' identity, you are righteous in his sight. Whether it's one of those two or another, the whole point is this, is that God is behind you. The white stone, the new name written on it, he's wanting to tell you this. 
And it says this, and not, no one knows it except the one who receives it. See, that's personal. Only, the, only sharing it between you because God wants you to know personally that no matter what you're, fit, you're going through, whatever you're doing, live out my identity. Let me ask you tonight. What identity are you building your life on? What are we teaching our kids to build their identity on? Some kids today and some adults are building it on their looks, shape of their body, how muscular they are. What's the problem with that? It won't last. It's not going to be permanent, is it? Identity built on your IQ, but what if someone's smarter than you, a better grade than you? What if someone gets promoted over you? Identity built on finances. What if you lose them? What if you lose your health? What if you lose your job? Identity built on your talents, your skills, until someone's better than you, outdoes you, works harder than you, outshines you. Identity built on what people think of you, but what if they don't think those things anymore? What if you're not as popular? What if you're not accepted What if people don't like you as much as they once did? See, all of those identities are all things that are built on, like the rich man, money, or those things. They are built on temporal things. That's why the Bible alters, gives us an alternative to put it on Jesus. Now, let me tell you how crucial it is. Stay with me. In the book of Revelation, identity is so important, and you know one half of it. I know if you read Revelation, you'll know that People's identity is marked out symbolically on their forehead because the followers of the beast, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, it says their name of the beast is written on their forehead. And if you have the mark of the beast, it's on your forehead and it's in your hand. Why is that symbolically the way it's put together? Because that identifies you as a follower of the beast and follower and putting the, when you have someone put your name on there, or it, it means you are committed. You are really committed to it. But what most people don't realize when they read Revelation is also the same of Jesus' followers. In Revelation chapter 14, 1 and a couple other places, it says that God's name was written on their forehead. And so Revelation is all about this identity choice. Who will you be totally committed to? The beast or the Lord? The priest, when he went into the temple before God, had a turban on, and that turban had a gold plate across it in the book of Leviticus. And across here it said, holy to the Lord. Because God's been asking his people to demonstrate who they're really committed to. Where do they find their identity? And we all have a choice. And I would dare say, (laughs) I'm no prophet, believe me. But I believe that those times in Revelation may not be as far off as we once thought. We used to think about that and read books on it. In fact, that was so far away. It may not be as far away as you might think. And the time where you will have to make a choice, and I will have to make a choice, if you're still here. Right? For those of us who go up in the rapture, that won't be an issue. But we, some people will be making choices. What will we make choices with now, though, in our lives The second one, if you'll turn to chapter 3, we have five minutes. That's not going to happen, but. 
Chapter 3, verse 12, let me read this down to The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. Here's what it means. We say it today. He or she is a pillar in our community. That means they're important. They're really someone who has status. People look to them. They're a pillar in, our, in, in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar and ground of the truth. Galatians 2.9, Peter and Paul were considered pillars. John, in the, in the new early church, it says. It uses that term to talk about the stature and importance of people. God says, see, when you come to know me and you find your identity in me and follow me, see, I will make you like a pillar in my temple where God dwells. And back then, if you were somebody important in the community, they would take and inscribe your name and your contribution, scribe it right on one of the pillars of the temple. So when people walked in, the first thing they saw, the opening two pillars, was your name inscribed on there. Because the people of that temple wanted them to know, hey, these people really are important in this temple. God says, see, when you do all those things to follow me, even when persecution comes, I'm going to do someday in the eternal temple, I'm going to write and inscribe the name on it, he says. Verse 12, and they shall never go out. In the first century when you were persecuted, if you were Jewish, became Christian, you were in the synagogue, and they would kick you out. They call it in Revelation the synagogue of Satan. But you would lose all social abilities, sometimes even the ability to have a job or find food. It was a very risky thing to stand up for Jesus. Here's what he says. Someday, I'm going to write your name on my pillar, and you'll never have to worry about being kicked out. I'll always take you in. Things will be so different. And meanwhile, here's what you have to do. You have to endure and persevere. And he says, and if you do, I'll say these things and I'll be done. Because you didn't deny my name, he says earlier on, I'm going to tell you something about the names I'm going to give you. Look at them real quickly. I will write on him. And why does he write on him? It's not a tattoo. Because what is he? He's a pillar. So here's what God's going to inscribe on the pillar in his temple about you. He's going to say this. I will write on him the name of my God. Ownership. God takes you as his child. Number two, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem citizenship and cities in the, New, in the New Testament were absolutely critical. If you wanted blessings, if you wanted all the benefits of how, all that Rome could give you, you had to be a citizen. If you weren't, you were considered a free person or a slave, which was way down the social total pole. To be a citizen and have all the rights of citizenship was everything. Here's what he says. You follow me, take on my identity. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write the name of my God on you, ownership. You belong to me, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to give you all the rights of citizenships in heaven. And he's going to say this, and which comes down from my God of heaven, and I'm going to put my own new name on you. Everybody has a name. Some people have a nickname, right? I don't know if you know this, do you know who Edward the Bear is? Anybody know? The re that's the real name. You only know by the nickname. You don't know Edward the Bear? Anybody? Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh's real name is Edward the Bear. You didn't know that. See, you learned something at church tonight. Right? Major cities. New York City's nickname. Chicago's uh, not, no, don't do Las, Las Vegas. I don't want to do that one, right? 
But there's all kinds of other cities. They, they have nicknames, right? You have a nickname. Maybe you have a nickname. But what is it about nicknames? You give someone a nickname because your family, you know all about them. Maybe your closest friends, they know about your nickname. Not everyone. In fact, someone else uses your nickname around a public, in public about people they don't know. Don't call me that here. Right, why? Because when you get a, n- a new name, a different name, what does it mean? Intimacy, closeness. Do you see what God wants you to know? Yeah, the new Jerusalem, heaven, pillars, your name. But I got to tell you this, he says, I get a name that only me and you know. You know why? Because I want you to know we're close, really close. I met Dr. J one time on a vacation in Mexico in a pharmacy. He was getting a drink, and so was I. And I looked at him. I should have went and shook his hand, but I was so awestruck, I just watched him, and he left, and I did nothing. I didn't even say rub my shoe or something, right? But if I would have said, how about this? If I would have gone and said, hey, I played basketball with Dr. J, and he knows my first name, and he's calling me next week. No one would believe that, right? The Queen of England, I was sitting at the special ceremony and all this stuff with the horses and everything right there, right? And she walked right by, walked right by. And so I reached out and grabbed, no, I didn't. You know what? But if I could tell you, I met with the Queen and we had tea together and crumpets and all that. And she knows my name. You'd be impressed, right? How about the God of heaven? He's given you a new name, a name that he made up. He has just for you, right? And he wants you to share it with it. He, you know why he tells you all these things? Because that new name is going to be given to you someday. But today, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to persevere. It's going to be difficult to hold on to his name and identify with it and live it out when virtually no one else does. That's what a conqueror is. That's what a victor is. Are you that? Let's pray. Ah, oh, Father, thank you. A new name. Oh, that's our identity. Someday Jesus is going to give us a new name because naming is authority and he has charge over us, but it's more than that. Naming is knowing. He knows us. He's intimate with us. He's watching over us and helping us be the conquerors that he will. And Father, if we're going to be like your son Jesus and conquer, it's going to be through weakness. There's going to be a cross involved. It won't be easy, and perhaps suffering will be involved. Help us, Lord, knowing that you have a new name for us. Now to live worthy, worthy of all the glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.